G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan, and looking forward to having a bit of a play with our topic today. Absolutely, because it is a topic that we've wanted to talk about for a little while, and uh, so we thought getting close to our 50th episode, we would uh, take the liberty of doing today's topic, which is something that we do both enjoy, uh, and it also draws a little bit uh, from your book as well, Dad. So as always, we do like to get into these sorts of topics, but we've called today's episode A Freer Future with Physics. So Dad, bit of a funny name, we, I must admit, we will tell everyone, we, we did labour a little bit over the, uh, the alliteration for the name. I think we're maybe getting a little bit too wedded to the alliteration, you know, nearly 50 episodes in. But, hey, we've come this far, so we may as well keep it going. But a freer future with physics. So what are we going to be talking about today, Dad? Okay, now this comes back to something which had a huge influence on me early in my career when I learned a little bit more about some of the principles from quantum physics. And until that time, I would have thought that has nothing to do with you know, human beings, the way we live our lives, it's kind of this absolute, you know, mysterious kind of stuff about equations and how people understand atoms and all this kind of thing, you know, beyond my understanding. But then I read some things that were just profound about some of the possible parallels between what was being discovered in quantum physics even a hundred years ago and how that might be relevant to our lives in some way. And so there's been a huge change in the understanding of the nature of the world from the advances from Newtonian physics, which was very mechanical. It was all about how you, know, you could get different kinds of forces acting on different objects and leading to certain consequences or results. And that had a big influence on psychology, that kind of understanding of the world, like A leads to B leads to C, this kind of thing. But quantum physics turned so much of that on its head and it helps us understand just how, well, not just mysterious, but also how subjective the world is, how actually free we are to take a particular view or viewpoint or attitude or lens to the world, how we see things can make such a difference. And quantum physics helped us understand a lot more about how our take on things, our view of things, our way of looking at things can radically affect our future, taking what was already a principle in psychology and turbocharging it. Well, it is such a fascinating topic, quantum physics, and as you say, one that is just so incredibly complicated, and I must admit, one that, you know, the first time you, you come across some of this kind of stuff, it's almost a little bit overwhelming, but as you say, as time goes by, uh, I suppose you hear more and more explanations, and eventually it starts to make a little bit more sense to you, to the point where it just does become so fascinating when you understand some of the ramifications for the way that our understanding has changed over time. Yes, and look, I might even say it first, I was feeling really daunted when I wrote a chapter on my book about quantum physics and I thought, well, today I've set aside to, to write a first draft about this and how am I going to deal with this? And I started procrastinating and I looked at an email and I clicked on something else and I went to something else in Google and it led, after a number of clicks amazingly, to this comment by a physicist, Richard Feynman. And I was looking at nothing to do with physics at the time, but this quote came up which said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't. 
So that's a bit of a qualified. It took a bit of the pressure off writing and also what we talk about now. We're going to look to draw on some of the ideas or illustrate some of the potential relevance of these principles, but then look at how they apply to psychology and what we do understand. Well, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but one of the things that we've spoken about on the podcast before is the idea that our mental health is supported by a view of the world that's both optimistic and accurate. And one of the things that I like about some of this sort of stuff, as we'll discuss today, is the possibilities that it presents. As you say, it allows us to, I suppose, have a more optimistic view that is in many ways more accurate. It's not as if we're sort of, you know, burying our head in the sand and, you know, anything goes and we're creating, uh, you know, something out of nothing. There is some science behind some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. And I think when you do unpack some of it and when you relate it to some of the psychological principles that we'll talk about, it's incredibly encouraging, I think, because, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a openness that is developed maybe in in science and psychology that has come from quantum physics and I think we can draw on that. Absolutely because when we look at say mental health problems for example then how we react to facing some kind of mental health challenge like dealing with depression or trauma reactions which these are somewhat arbitrary concepts anyway we might think that they're made in concrete these notions like depression or whatever and that can really influence our way of thinking about them but when we realize that the way we think about our reactions to situations or things that are happening we can make a huge difference and unfortunately a lot of psychology in the past was a little bit stuck with certain kinds of more mechanical notions like, say, even if Freud would emphasise that so much about people's lives would depend on the first six years. Well, there's a lot of truth in the importance of early development, but that could be a bit bleak if people had had a very challenging first six years of life or they had long-term habits or personality difficulties in their adult life. They might think, well, of course I've got these problems. Look at what happened my first six years of life. You could feel doomed or even in behaviour therapy, people would talk about human beings as almost like a black box where if you try to understand human behaviour, you wouldn't try and look in people's minds at all. You'd see what had happened to people beforehand, what situations were they in, what kind of experiences that they had. Well, that would predict what habits they had for the future and what they were going to do. You wouldn't need to ask anyone what their intentions were. Just look at what had happened to them. Then you can predict the future. Well, how bleak is that if people get stuck with problems? And then you'd have also explanations about depression from a medical model where the idea would be, oh, look, if you're depressed, then that means that you've got some genetic defect, you've got a biochemical imbalance. Hey, you might need to take medication for the rest of your life. There are a lot of fixed ideas. And we can also develop fixed ideas about ourselves if we think, oh, I've had this habit for so long, that's just me. It's too long I've had this to break this habit. Or if we react to fears about the future, oh, I've felt so nervous in that situation in the past or had so much difficulty, oh, now I'm afraid of the future, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this situation. There's so much about those thoughts and those viewpoints that can be limiting. And if we draw on some of the understanding from the most advanced science, quantum physics, and then we make some parallels to psychology, then rather than having these mechanical, stuck models, oh, I can't help it, it's because of things that have happened to me that mean I'm going to act this way, we can just have so much more of a freer, 
you know, so many more opportunities, so much more scope to shift our behaviour and reactions in directions that we would prefer. Well, the classic one that comes to mind when you talk about there is is clinical depression. And it may have been in my you know early age and, and naivety that came with that, but I used to think that clinical depression had to do with a chemical imbalance in the brain. And I don't know if it's maybe passed on through movies and TV shows and all this sort of stuff, but there is such a, I suppose, fixed aspect to having something like a chemical imbalance in the brain. But whether it be people like Carol Dweck has done a lot of work on, for example, like fixed mindsets versus growth mindsets. And I suppose the agency that, that comes with having more of a growth mindset and the ability that we all have to develop more of a growth mindset. It'd be interesting just to get your thoughts now because I know like CBT in many ways, it had this bent in it in terms of the way that we perceive things. It can affect you know how I suppose things are or how we think they are in many ways. But I suppose these ideas and incorporating some of quantum physics almost goes a little bit further again. Do you want to just describe exactly how these ideas even go further than the ideas of, of maybe CBT? Okay, well, perhaps the most basic principle from CBT, borrowing from Stoic philosophy, is the idea that it's not things that happen that make us feel a certain way, but how we view them, how we see them. So there's this subjectivity. So if we feel very anxious, it might be because we see a situation as being overwhelming or terrible or awful. If we are feeling depressed in a situation, it might be because we see a situation again as being overwhelming or ourselves as failing or as things aren't going to work out in the future. And if we feel depressed, it'll be partly because of our thoughts about, well, I'm overwhelmed at the moment, the future's going to turn out poorly. When I look to the past, I see myself as having failed. And there's a subjectivity around these kind of thoughts. So in CBT, we'd be focusing on helping people question or challenge their interpretations or beliefs about a situation as being, say, overwhelming or too threatening for them, always reflecting failure or their situation is really being helpless as opposed to there being other things that maybe they can do to get by. So there's this whole idea. It's not the situation itself. It's the way we perceive it. So we'd focus on our thoughts, our cognitions, to help change our feelings and to help change our behaviour. So thoughts are kind of like primary in some way. Well, the most amazing thing about quantum physics is over 100 years ago, they're discovering these really strange things. For example, the nature of reality is not this material world as we think we see it. Like, for example, I might think this table here, I'll wrap it with my knuckles, I, I think that's made of a certain kind of stuff. But no, actually, what it's partly made of is like a kind of energy which is influenced by our consciousness. All of matter in some way is reducible to our consciousness and how we see things. Because it's only when we observe things in a certain way, like we observe a particle or we observe an electron being in a particular situation, it's only then that it comes into a material reality. It's like it only exists as a potential until we perceive it or observe it. Now, how weird is that? But if the whole world is so, if you like, almost subjective or immaterial, that it doesn't actually have its substance until we see it a certain way, well, gosh, that certainly ramps up the notion that our attitudes or our viewpoints of a particular situation help create our reality. If we create material reality 
by viewing it in a certain way or perceiving it in a certain way or measuring it in a certain way, well, then how literally true is it that we create our emotional and psychological reality? Well, geez, I must admit, the first time I heard about these notions, I just, you know, it almost blows you away and you sort of think, well, hold on, like my experience of the world is this and then you hear it all explained a certain way and you go, oh, geez, like that almost doesn't make sense to me. But I suppose the way that I almost first came to terms with it, which is almost a little bit helpful, I think, in, in I suppose, coming to terms with some of this stuff is, you know, I remember, you know, when you're younger and you hear about, you know, atoms and molecules and how it's mostly space and, uh, you know, maybe being, you know, sort of adolescent boy, dad, you'd play sort of games with friends or whatever, where you'd kind of poke people and you'd go, hey, I'm not poking you at all because, you know, I'm just, uh, there's space between the atoms and all this sort of stuff. And you're almost playing around with this idea that the nature of reality that we experience is a little bit different to, I suppose, some of the scientific uh, models that you, that you hear. And uh, I think it was Schrodinger's cat, I believe, was kind of the experiment that, that came with, with this superposition idea in terms of there was a cat in the box and they basically uh, did an experiment where they maybe or, or maybe didn't release some you know, noxious gas into the box. And the idea was that until you look inside the box and see whether the cat is alive or dead, it is simultaneously both alive and dead. And, and what I'm picking up from what you're saying there is that basically the, the idea with kind of superposition in psychology in some ways is that we you know, go through a whole set of experiences that could be you know, positive or negative. And until we open the box on the particular situation, until we view it in a particular way, well, it's kind of both things at once in terms of it's, you know, it's not as if there's some kind of, you know, grand arbitrator who's, who's there able to decide on behalf of absolutely everyone what is correct. The arbitration in many ways comes from you know, the, the filter that we put on things, the lens that we put on things, and maybe what some of the mechanical views on psychology were picking up on is that that can be greatly influenced by our past. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it is so binary in that a particular past means a particular future. Yes, so we're partly talking about possibilities and we're partly talking about potential. So this idea of superposition is that if, for example an electron that's being observed in an experiment, it could be here or could be there or could be over there or could be in any number of an infinite number of positions and admittedly some positions more likely than others, like this is based on still some kind of probability, well, it also means that our attitudes or our viewpoint on a situation, it could be here, it could be there, we could think a little bit differently. It doesn't mean that anything goes, like there might be some viewpoints, if you like, that are much less likely to fit the situation than others but by the same token there's an enormous amount of subjectivity if you like because if we focus on an attitude or we conclude well this means this or I interpret it as that or this is a thought I have well in other words if we have a thought that comes into our mind if we have an intention that comes into our mind if we have any belief that we pay attention to then that will be, in a sense, fixing our reality to some extent with that thought, with that belief, with that mindset. So it says, wow, we better choose somewhat carefully or it's worth at least considering what viewpoint we adopt because that then will have 
consequences in how our reality is. If we have that viewpoint rather than another viewpoint, that's going to shape our reality. One of the interesting things I came across this week, Dad, looking at this idea of superposition was it reminded me of a philosopher that I really like, this fellow by the name of Richard Rorty. And Richard Rorty was basically a a secular philosopher who tried to, I suppose, understand and, and contend with many religious ideas. And he spoke about these things called super concepts. So to Rorty, a super concept, for example, was uh, truth with a capital T or reality with a capital R or morality with a capital M. And to Rorty, he had this idea that as humans, it's not as if we can tap into this idea of truth with a capital T or reality with a capital R. We have our own version of truth and we have our own version of reality and we can expand those as we go along and, and integrate other people's versions, but it's not as if we can tap into this pure version of what, for example, truth or reality is. And what reminded me of it is in some ways this idea of superposition reality in some ways is a little bit like this field of electrons that you're speaking of in terms of it's you know everything is kind of everywhere at once and we don't necessarily have a way to fully comprehend all of it at once but what we can do is measure it from a viewpoint which to me is this thing about superposition is you know superposition is kind of where the particle is up to the point that we measure it so it's almost like with reality you know it can be kind of all things and it's not as if there is one idea of reality that is transcendent of all others what we have the ability to do is measure it from the viewpoint that we're at which is a little bit like this idea of measuring an electron and observing an electron to me it's yeah it's about the idea of having a viewpoint rather than being able to fully comprehend the entire thing. Yes, and I think that's so helpful, that notion about how we can't perceive reality with a capital R. Don't be too arrogant. Don't be too fixed in our perspective or that will constrain us in different ways. It'll limit our potential. And this ties in with cultural wisdom, but also other principles from physics. So it brings to mind a wonderful Mexican proverb, which I understand It sounds even much more poetic in Spanish, but I think it's pretty good in English as well. A key principle that nothing is false and nothing is true. It depends on the crystal that you look through. That's so descriptive about how we can't see something exactly as it is. We always have some kind of lens or viewpoint that kind of distorts reality in a bit, but still, if you like helps us engage with the world, our viewpoints. But in the principle in physics, it's remarkably called the uncertainty principle. So this was developed by Heisenberg, who found through all this experimentation that if you're, for example, doing a a physics experiment and you want to see where a particle or electron is in space, you actually can't measure both its location and its momentum at the same time. So if you try and, if you like, sum up where this is in terms of some precise equation, like you can't get an exact fix on the nature of this particle 
where it is, what it's doing kind of thing, you can't get the location and momentum at the same time. And also the kind of apparatus that we use, the kind of scientific theories that we use before we do an experiment, the, for example, the actual lenses or microscopes that we use, the ways that we investigate something is coloured by our choices of how we view it and also what theories we draw on to understand it. So I think the whole idea, again, is don't be too dogmatic about the way we look at things. But by the same token as you're suggesting, we can still reflect on our understanding. We can, we can still consider our viewpoint because even though, along with that uncertainty principle, we, we can't even have an exact take on physical matter that's right in front of us despite having microscopes and what we want – well, that just shows that it's not as if we can have a completely objective take on our circumstances that we find ourselves in that are challenging or difficult or frustrating or encouraging. Like our viewpoint is what colours those interpretations. And again, like superposition and the uncertainty principle, still some potentials are more likely than others. So we're talking about potential, but there's still probabilities involved. Like, for example, if our house was destroyed in an earthquake, we're hardly going to think that's a good thing straight off. But by the same token, there are any number of ways of viewing that situation as utterly devastating and terrible and potentially destroying the rest of our lives or as something which we'll never recover from or something which at the moment we might not see how we're going to be able to deal with this too much at the moment but there are possible different ways of responding down the track and we can't exactly predict the future. And if we don't get caught up in helplessness or hopelessness, then maybe we have more flexibility or potential in how we respond. So certainly some things are going to tend to have better or worse consequences, but like Shakespeare said, things are neither good nor bad except thinking makes it so. So I think it's that whole notion of subjectivity. As I say, it's not anything goes. But if we can maintain more of a flexible attitude and not just assume that we should see things in a certain way, or that's just how it is, or, oh, but I do have these habits, or I do have these personality problems, or this is an impossible situation that I'm in. If we don't get too caught up in that negativity, again, perception of past failures, concern about future fears, if we realise that even our interpretation of the past and our interpretation of the future is limiting, the more we can be in the present moment allowing for a fuller range of potentials, often the better choices we're going to make rather than being too stuck or fixed in our interpretations of things. Even if on the face of it, it looks like we're in a really difficult, even potentially overwhelming situation. Well, I think these are such interesting ideas. And I remember, you know, I reckon I would have been you know, 17 or 18 years old and, and coming to terms for the first time with that idea that there's no such thing <laughs> technically as objectivity. Everything is subjective. It's not as if there's a, a council of people who meet and they're the ones who decide, you know, whose subjective opinion is objective. You know, we can have a consensus around things and there can be a reason for that consensus, but it's not as if, yeah, there is an inherent objectivity to things. And, and that's where I think you know, the work of Rorty again comes in here and I think is so interesting. And he spoke about, I suppose, the 
way of, I don't want to say progress or progression, uh, but in many ways that's kind of what it is. Rorty spoke about, I suppose I'm extrapolating here, but the way to kind of help our mental health in terms of what we're talking about today is he had two concepts. One he called self-creation and the other solidarity. And so recognizing that we, you know, have no way of tapping into this, you know, reality with a capital R, all that we're able to do is to increase our understanding. And and what I like about self-creation and solidarity is this idea of self-creation, similar to the ideas of, of Jung, similar to the ideas of, you know, Buddha in many ways, many of, many of the ideas in the Bhagavad Gita have similarities. So it's almost this idea of looking internally and, and finding our true selves is almost the cliched notion of it. But then this idea of solidarity, it's not sending side by side someone just blindly for the sake of supporting them. It's actually about understanding their point of view, understanding the differences between their point of view and your point of view, and wherever possible, trying to integrate their point of view into yours. So so this idea of solidarity, Rorty talks about, for example, reading books can be one way of increasing your solidarity or your understanding of solidarity because you get the viewpoint of someone else. You get to have, in many ways, an intimate look at their thoughts and experiences and you're, in many ways, changed from going through that, from experiencing something from someone else's viewpoint. And so, to me, that's where I I like the way that this stuff almost neatly comes together when we combine it, for example, with Rorty because I suppose it makes it a little bit easier in some ways to you know, not think, oh, you know, we're never going to be able to have it all worked out and, you know, there's no such thing as objective. Like, what are we going to do? It almost gets a little bit overwhelming in some ways. But I think when you break it down to that level of self-creation, you know, who do we want to be in the world? And then solidarity in terms of understanding about the world, but then also integrating that with our viewpoint and almost combining the inner and outer worlds in some way. So, yeah, I I just really like the way that it almost all comes together, I think, when we discuss it with this idea of superposition and and the uncertainty principle. Yes, and I think that you're bringing up another physics principle there, that there's another analogy. It's called complementarity. So complementarity means that we can do experiments in physics to view the world, or matter if you like, in terms of particles or understand how it operates in terms of waves. It could be particles or waves. You can't look at it in each of those ways at the same time. So they're, if you like, complementary ways of dealing with things. In psychology, I think that's a little bit like looking at our inner world and our outer world. They're two different ways of looking at our life and you can't just look at them the same way. If we're really focused on our inner world at the time and being very reflective, we're probably not even going to be noticing so many of the things around us. Where If we're utterly attuning our senses on something external to us, then we're likely to not so much be processing our thoughts and reflections on things so much. So our inner and outer world is somewhat complementary. And so we're to really understand the nature of matter... We need to look at both particles and waves, ways of understanding or explaining things. To understand ourselves as human beings in psychology, we also need to look at both sides, our inner world and our outer world. And I think that got out of balance with some of the earlier psychological approaches in psychodynamic therapy. So much of it would be about dreams or wishes or the unconscious in an individual. 
but not so much focusing on what was on the outside. It could be out of balance that way. But then along came behaviourism, say no, psychoanalytic theory is all wrong, we should just focus on the external world like science does. Well, early Newtonian science might have, but quantum physics had already moved on to look at consciousness as well. Well, behaviourism was too much focused on this external measurement which has had all sorts of influence on psychology as though things can be measured objectively. This was like the old Newtonian, more mechanical models, unfortunately, of psychology that came through in behaviourism, because even in trying to understand people, they'd talk about this idea of a black box. The black box, in a sense, the humans in that, their mind, you don't have to know about someone's intentions or wishes or psychology, even if you like. Just look at the situations they're in and their previous history, what influences they've been exposed to. Then that will help account for their habits, and knowing the person's situation and their habits, if you like, and their past reinforcement schedules, in other words, what happened to either encourage or discourage a behaviour, you could predict everything in the future. You could predict how they would act, you'd predict what they would do in a particular situation if you only knew the inputs, the situation, their past experience. Well, that takes away all human potential. It's as though a person's like a machine, just reacting to what came before. So that's where behaviourism was way too focused just on the external world. We need to look at both together. But I think that's one of the things too. When we look at our world and so we look at reality, well, that idea of self-creation, as you mentioned, we're going to have more potential if we allow ourselves to consider lots of different ways of doing things, not just be constrained by past fears or habits or judgments, be open to different things and looking at creative ways of doing things, but also we still might take into account what I would describe our consensual reality, what others around us tend to do, how they tend to act, what their beliefs are, how they how they likely respond to situations. So it's not as if we can control everything that happens in the world, but the thing is, if we take our circumstances into account, if we still allow ourselves much more possibility, in other words, allowing that uncertainty principle, superposition, if we allow ourselves to take a wider range of perspectives and not be, if you like, fixed in our position we're in a better position to adopt viewpoints or a lens or a crystal that is helpful for us. And in psychology, we know that will tend to have a positive element to it. So it might be being hopeful or having an optimistic or a growth mindset that we've talked about before. But also, like we talked about with Lucy Hone in the recent grief episode, we don't have to gloss over challenging or difficult circumstances or painful emotions either we can still be if you like living in reality not just fantasy but we can really consider our lens our perspective our viewpoint our mindset well i think that's why it's important to talk about some of this stuff and it's important to look at some of this stuff because particularly at the moment like you know dad i've been in a lot of situations in the last sort of couple of months that have looked pretty black and white negative but at the same time, you can almost pick it through in a way and you can almost reflect on it in a way where you think, hold on, actually, it's, you know, I have more choice than to just, I suppose, think about this in such a black and white negative way. And I think what talking about this highlights to me a little bit is, 
is that there can be things that, you know, they can be both true and not true at the same time, if that makes sense. And so on some level, we can choose to see it as true and therefore it can be true. And, and just one, I suppose, example to, to try and illustrate this is that, you know, so often we hear about, you know, social media and the internet and how negative as a, I suppose, some influence on humanity the internet is and and to some degree you know there is a lot of negative influence and and I suppose to a degree I subscribe to that idea of you know the internet especially at the moment when there's so many black and white views and and people aren't able to fully communicate in 240 characters and all this sort of stuff but I came across this thing the other day which it's actually to do with cryptocurrency which is a whole conversation altogether but basically in the kind of cryptocurrency community, they have this acronym. They say WAGMI, W-A-G-M-I. And basically what they've done is they've subverted a trading term, which I believe was NGMI is this kind of um, stock trading term where they'd say something was NGMI, it's not going to make it. And so with cryptocurrency, this community, the way that they use this acronym, it's we're all going to make it. And so, you know, to me, since seeing that, it's completely re, I suppose, conceptualized the idea of what the internet is to me in some ways in terms of before, you know, I'd flick through Twitter and you'd be bombarded with so many differing negative opinions that you think, you know, I'm never going to be able to get back on the same page. And then you come across something like this, which is, you know, wag me, you know, we're all going to make it. And just that concept, and there's a whole, I suppose, philosophy around that concept. It's, it's you know, in many ways more than just a, a bunch of letters. But to me, you know, the last few, I suppose, weeks or whatever since coming across that, the internet's a lot more of a bright place in some ways in terms of, yeah, like it is still that negative place where, you know, there are all the negative elements of social media and it allows us to maybe project all our, you know, faults and foibles and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, there is something that's good in it. And potentially, you know, there's a really bright future that we're able to harness and leverage through the internet and through this kind of idea of, you know, we're all going to make it. And and so to me, partly that's what this is about. It's about recognising that, yeah, like something... Yeah, it is negative. Like, it is also positive, though. You know, life isn't black and white. What quantum physics seems to suggest to me is that, yeah, life is not black and white. And so, although we can say, yeah, look, at on one level, that may be true, but I'm going to choose to view it through this lens. And, and as you were saying before, I think that's where the power of this stuff comes in, is that it enables us to make that choice because... You know, as I said at the start, it allows us to have a optimistic view in the, of the world and an accurate view of the world because it allows for so many more possibilities. So in many ways, you know, it's not everything goes, but we get to choose. And if we want to, we can choose for that to be a bit more positive. Yes, I think that's a really important point and it gets across something really basic in psychology too. So much of how we experience life and circumstances is what we pay attention to. There are going to be all sorts of things that can be, if you like, negative in the internet. There'll be all sorts of things that could be positive in the internet. There could be negative and positive things in our family or work circumstances or how our sporting team's going. There's all sorts of different things that can come up. It's going to be 
what we pay attention to, that's one of the main ways that we create our world or our experience of the world, so to speak. But I also think it's often striking, it seems, how when people are putting out a kind of, if you like, positive energy in the world or going about things with a certain kind of intention or looking to do something, if you like, constructive or kind or have a positive purpose in some way. I notice this with client stories in many ways, personal experience and all the rest of it, how our mindset then and what we're doing, our attitude seems to then, if you like, draw more positivity to us. Whereas there'd be times in the past I would have been in situations that you know might have been irritated about and all the rest of it. And then remember Carl Jung's reference to the shadow side oh okay if we're in circumstances outside us that are pretty stuck or difficult or whatever then sometimes we might just pause and see what we're putting out into the world if you like in terms of our intentions or behavior or viewpoints because I think often our circumstances are a little bit more of a mirror or a reflection of where we're at and what we're paying attention to. So that's not to take it too far and then blame ourselves for negative things that are happening, but just pay some attention to what we're attending to and how we're interpreting it. Well, what comes to mind for me there is the idea of karma in terms of, you know, if we put out positivity into the world, then we're more likely to experience positivity from the world. And the interesting thing about that, Dad, is I suppose that, you know, linking the inner and outer worlds in many ways, that reminds me of synchronicity a little bit in terms of, you know, your favourite topic. I think I can can certainly say with some conviction. Uh, and, <laughs> and I think that's where synchronicity comes into all of this sort of stuff. And I know as well that there's a concept from quantum physics as well that relates to synchronicity too. So, Dad, I think we'd be remiss if we were doing a, a quantum physics episode and, and not talk a little bit about synchronicity. So, do you want to just discuss how synchronicity relates to quantum physics as well in terms of maybe that link between the inner and outer world? Yes, well, first of all, to describe synchronicity, as many of our listeners will understand, it's an uncanny coincidence that in some way links our inner and outer worlds. So one of the classical examples of that is thinking of someone you haven't seen for a long period of time and then five minutes later you might get a message or an email from them, even though they're from another country, something like that. And it seems there's this curious connection which seems more than chance. Or another striking example... There are a number of situations where, for example, someone has died and their clock stopped at that exact moment when they died. This curious, uncanny coincidence linking a person's, if you like, consciousness in the outer world. So often people would have said, including in psychology, no, we're trying to be objective with evidence. No, that's just a a coincidence. Don't try and read anything into that. How could that possibly make any sense in the world? And I think that's when people are using the two mechanistic way of thinking about things. Because there's an equivalent in physics called entanglement, where if, for example, if you have two electrons, it could be particles, but electrons, and they're in interaction with each other, and then you separate them by a great distance, technically from one side of the universe to the other, then if something impacts on one electron, for example, affects its spin, at that exact instantaneous moment, it's been proved that there'll be a complementary reaction in the other electron at exactly that same time. Now, if two bits of matter can be connected instantaneously at a distance, then why not people's minds? 
So this is the notion of non-locality. So the idea of non-locality would also include telepathy, precognition, and there's some notions from physics as well as Eastern mystical traditions that time can travel backwards as well as forwards. There are these really strange things that happen about the nature of reality different from what we thought. But this non-locality idea does suggest that things like precognition, telepathy, psychic phenomena could perhaps exist because they're things that are just as weird that happen in the material world. Now, that's got a number of implications, and one of them could be in terms of forming intentions, or people might use the term manifestation. If we have a strong intention and combine that with higher energy levels, if you like, like a higher emotion, if we've got an intention and a feeling that goes with that of really envisioning something happening that we want to happen, many people will have the experience of a time something coming to pass that they've been anticipating or hoping for, almost putting out an intention in a certain way. We can call it paying attention with intention as well. We might even be a little bit on the lookout for something which gives us an opportunity a certain way. Now, some people would say, we're just reading that into a situation. We're just, if you like, being biased in what we're paying attention to. We forget all the times that we thought of someone and didn't hear from them five minutes later, that kind of thing. But these things seem to happen way too much for chance. There does seem to be this link between our inner and outer worlds. And we know that the material world from physics... There's this link between our consciousness and matter and that can happen at a non-local level. Now, I think that is going to lead to much more openness to considering paranormal phenomena. So more than 50% of people in surveys on each continent have described they have a belief in paranormal phenomena like telekinesis, precognition, again, maybe a belief in spirits or ghosts in some ways. These things would seem so strange or fanciful, but what I've learned from many clients, actually some personal experience and other people that I know, many people have experiences like this that often aren't acknowledged. And sometimes they're relevant to our psychology and our well-being. But certainly this notion of putting out a positive intention, if you like, to the universe. And I sometimes use the expression, be open to being open and notice what you notice. And sometimes people, I've experienced this as well, might have what I call a numinous feeling, like an uncanny, otherworldly feeling that maybe something is going to happen in a certain way. Or we've got a problem in our mind we're wanting to solve, and we have a feeling that we might encounter something soon that might help us solve that. And then 10 minutes later, something happens to help almost miraculously solve a problem. I've had that experience on quite a number of occasions. I know many other people have as well. I think this relates to human potential. And I think a lot of it has been ignored because I think often people, if they can't explain something in some mechanical, more objective, scientific, Newtonian way, if you like, it's often dismissed. So part of the reason, Rowan, why I was interested in this topic is to, again, further encourage conversation or people even telling stories about experiences that they've had that can't be easily rationally explained because that is a very significant part of life for many people. It's often a meaningful part of life for many people. However, in the past, often that kind of conversation was shut down 
including in the psychological field, because of being seen to not be objective enough. Well, the world is pretty weird. And as one pioneering physicist said, the world is not only weirder than we imagine, it's weirder than we can imagine. Now, this doesn't mean that anything goes. Like you said, we've still got to check our hunches or views or look at the consequences of our actions and consider them in different kind of ways. But it does show up more possibilities that are there. But even in our own lives with an everyday challenge or problem, just think in a small way. What might I do now to nudge this in a better direction, in an improved direction? How might I address this? This is something I'm concerned about. What might I do that might be helpful rather than less helpful? Do something even small, a nudge in a certain direction. And if we're open to the potential for even little nudges to lead to something bigger, that can get us going as opposed to thinking, no, I'm stuck with this. No, this is what my habits say will happen. No, I'm too fearful of doing that, so I can't try that. What we're really talking about in this podcast is being open, well, being open to being open to possibility and potential. Well, one of my things, Dad, about quantum entanglement, and I think it highlights to some degree exactly what you're saying there in terms of maybe there being some dogmatic thinking around it in some ways, is that I believe it was Einstein who actually was among the physicists to work on entanglement theory for the very first time, and he actually didn't accept the validity of the theory in terms of, you know, Albert Einstein was one of those people that you speak of in terms of maybe questioning, maybe thinking there was a little bit of bias involved or whatever it was, but it was his experiment. So yeah, I almost just find it kind of funny to get into the, the headspace of what he would have been thinking when he was doing that experiment in terms of like just questioning the validity of it. It was almost like a spite paper. He's like, hey, well, if you reckon this well, I'll show you in theory why it won't work. And then he turned out proving that it did work in some way. So it's a yeah, funny little thing. Yes, he used the expression spooky action at a distance to say, oh, there can't be any such thing as spooky action at a distance. But there is. And I'll even mention as we're winding up that someone called Lynn McTaggart has done studies that show if you get a group of people together and they're, if you like, contemplating some kind of benefit to a person's health, not just in the group that they might be holding hands with. She does this with groups of eight. But it might be someone at a distance. If these people together are contemplating some improvement in health for someone at a distance, there's evidence that that could be of benefit. Now, culturally, that's not a new concept. Some people used to call it praying. But this whole idea of non-local influence, this whole idea of how we can turn our consciousness in a certain direction to make a difference. Actually, we might put up a brief article I wrote that included something about Lynn McTaggart and her ways of working. So I personally think there's good reason to allow for these expansive possibilities. But when it boils down to it, the main thing I think when it comes to change or hope or improvement for mental health, well-being, is to recognise if we form an intention, if we draw on our conscious intention for things to go in a certain direction for improvement, then basically that is a powerful thing. Don't underestimate how even small intentions can make a difference if we make a start. 
but forming an intention, looking to influence things by taking certain action in a particular direction and being open to that potentially leading somewhere, being open to that maybe making change, maybe even over and above what we can see at the time. It's putting in some of that energy in a certain direction. That's what I see time and time again as being the most important factor in change. And that's why I sometimes say to clients, I really appreciate seeing the way they're prepared to struggle. It's that preparedness to struggle, which is often the ingredient that can help bring about change. But it shows that people are prepared to make an effort to form an intention to go in a certain direction, even if it's difficult. Again and again and again in my daily work, I see that paying off. And I think what today's topic and what we've spoken about on today's podcast does is it helps us to realize that there are so many situations where we may feel I suppose helpless to form an intention we may feel you know even locked down at the moment there's certain things that we cannot do and so we may feel certain constraints but to me what everything that we've spoken about today suggests is that you know there's there's so little about the world that's black and white and you know I say that as a Newcastle United fan dad I see black and white fairly often But at the same time, there is so much about it. It may seem exactly a particular way, one point in time, but actually the world is so much more nuanced than that. And when we are in a situation where we do feel stuck or we do feel that there's more negativity than we want to deal with, uh, that's where I see that this stuff is is to do with a freer future in some ways because I think that the more that we realise that the world isn't black and white, when we feel that we are maybe being constrained one way or the other or when we feel that we are maybe being forced in a certain direction, well, quite often when we look at things at closer view, actually there's a whole lot many more possibilities than may have at first presented themselves. So that's what I get out of everything that we've spoken about today is that, yeah, there can be so many times when we'll feel stuck. There may not seem that there's much positivity in a situation, but I suppose as humans in many ways, part of the human spirit is that even in situations that do seem like that, we are able to choose to be a little bit more positive than just see things as black and white negative. Yes, and so a key thing about CBT, it's always been based on the principle of it's our view of a situation that counts going back to the philosophy of Epictetus over 2,000 years ago. People are not disturbed by things, but by their view of them. And so hopefully talking about some of these principles of quantum physics adds even more reality to that understanding. Absolutely. And well, thank you so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It has been interesting to chat to you about it. And we'll also mention as well, some of the the science behind what we spoke about today is from, I believe it's chapter two in your book, Spooky Action at a Distance. So, you know, one of the things about quantum physics is it is so hard to get your head around. And, you know, even Albert Einstein, as we were saying, he was someone who, uh, who they later proved that he even had some limitations in his thinking about quantum physics. But in saying that, I read that chapter again during the week and I will say you, you very eloquently explained things there, Dad, and, and just the way that it's all been able to come together today. I've really enjoyed having the discussion with you again. Thanks, Ryan. It's been great to be able to talk about this.
And as always, we'll put all the resources for today's episode. Dad, you mentioned that article that you wrote. You wrote a few articles about this topic over the time. So we'll put all those up at the episode page for today, which you can access at sykespiels.com.au. And for those of you who haven't already... Feel free to give us some feedback, whether it be Apple or Spotify or or even just send us a message. We always love hearing from everyone out there and appreciate those of you who have gotten in touch with us. But thanks so much again, Dad. I look forward to the next time. Good then, Rowan. Look forward to it.